Welcome to In Reality, the podcast about truth, disinformation, and the media. I'm Eric Schoenberg, a journalist and media executive, most recently the CEO of Inc. and Fast Company, now the editor-in-chief of Amplify Publishing Group. If you're a Democrat, have you ever espoused the slogan, defund the police? If you're a Republican, do you agree with politicians who claim that 2020 presidential election was stolen? If you said yes to either, you may well be operating under a collective illusion, a widespread mental phenomenon in which people take positions in public they privately don't actually believe, because they think that everyone else in their group does believe it. The implications for the spread of disinformation these days are obvious. So today we'll be talking to Todd Rose, co-founder of the think tank Populous and the author of a fascinating book called Collective Illusions. Todd and I will talk about a mind-boggling range of common public beliefs that almost no one privately believes, about why it's so important for our own mental health and the health of our democracy to speak our own authentic truth, and how to do that without getting yourself shunned by the group. And now, here's Todd Rose. Well, hello, Todd. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for being on In Reality. I had the impression while I was reading the book that the same feeling I had when I was reading Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow several years ago. So that feeling was, you know, I recognize all these mental shortcuts and tendencies that that are being described here. And I recognize also how they're not helping me, but also how hard it is to shake them. The difference between your book, Collective Illusions, and the Kahneman book is that in Kahneman, the heuristics lead to bad decision-making in business, maybe, or, or personal finance. But the collective illusions you describe basically make people miserable and inauthentic and are tearing our society apart. So the, the stakes are pretty high. Let's get down to it. So what is a collective illusion. Uh, you point out the scholarly term for this is pluralistic ignorance, but what makes them collective? What makes them illusions? Yeah, great. So look, basically collective illusions are social lies, right? They they happen in situations where most people in a group go along with a view that they don't privately agree with just because they incorrectly think that most other people in the group agree with it. So as a result, entire groups can end up doing something that almost nobody really wants. And, you know, every time I, I, I give people that definition, the sort of knee-jerk response is, yeah, I'm sure that happens once in a while, but, but it seems like it would be like an anomaly, right? How could we be so wrong about our groups? And, 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 and the reality is, and, and we can dive into this more, like my, my think tank populace, this is what we study. And I'm telling you, it, it is it's more the rule than the exception right now in society. And as you said, you know, because, because we care a lot about being with our groups, when we're wrong about what our groups want, we end up making decisions that we didn't want, right? So we're miserable on that front. But in truth, we end up harming the very group we're trying to conform to. I, I believe it's probably the single biggest invisible threat to free society right now. Them's fighting words, Todd. So <laughs> give us some... Examples. What are some collective illusions that are widespread right now? Well, look, I, I wish I wish that was hard to come up with, you know, like this list. But, you know, not surprisingly, these illusions happen whenever there's a lot of social pressure around ideas. And so you won't be terribly surprised to know in, in our politics, just like littered with them. So maybe I'll start there and then we'll back off into some more interesting things. 
So politically uh, on the left, the idea of like defund the police, that was a, a really clear example where um, the, the percentage of Democrats who actually supported that was never higher than single digits. But because they believed that most Democrats supported it, you heard, you heard a majority of them saying it publicly. And of course, that one went down pretty quickly as soon as you put it to a vote, even in Minneapolis. On the right, there's no greater illusion than this idea that somehow the previous election was stolen. And you will see a majority of Republicans in, in public say it because they know that that's the right answer. But that it's never higher than you know, 14, 15% in private. Okay, so that's our politics that we've got all kinds of problems there. Let's let's think about something where I think you'd be surprised that there are illusions um, in terms of, and I touched on this in the book, but uh, the kind of life you want to live, like wh what does a successful life mean? I mean, what could be more personal <laughs> than the life you want to lead? So my think tank did the largest private opinion study ever on uh, what people mean by a successful life. And I'll spare you the detail on the methods, but it, it, they're really hard to game, if not impossible. So we know we're getting at what people really think. So this issue of fame, right, being famous. So out of 76 trade-off attributes that could define a successful life, we believe that most people would rank being famous as number one. Like that is the most important thing to people. In private, it turns out to be dead last. <laughs> like dead last. Wow. So wow. the problem is, of course, okay, I don't care about being famous, but I'm pretty sure everybody else does. Now, when I want to try to do things that show you that I'm successful, I'll often try to make choices that you see as, as important, right? And and so we're seeing this spread. And, and what's funny about, about the success one, about fame, is that, you know, we talk to our advertising friends, our marketing friends, our, you know, media people, who keep selling us this idea of fame and ask them like, what are you doing? Now, of course they're under the same illusion, right? So in their mind, they're just giving the public what the public wants, <laughs> which is showing them fame. And so, but of course I watch it and go, well, of course people care about fame. Why would Rolex sell me fame if nobody wants it, right? So um, I use that one because just to, just to punch down a bit about the serious consequences is one of the most important things about collective illusions is that unless you do something about them, this generation's illusions tend to become next generation's private opinion. And mm. a per this is a perfect example with fame. So my, my colleagues at UCLA have been studying for, for years uh, the effects of media and culture on middle school children. Like what do they internalize? And for a very long time, uh, every year the result they'd get was pretty encouraging, which is it was largely character related. Like, I want to be a good person. Um, I want to be honest, that kind of stuff. Great. A few years ago, it shifted and it's never went back. And now every year, the dominant thing they see is I want to be famous. TikTok famous or yes. Instagram it, famous. It, and, and it's funny. One of the kids they 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 actually interviewed with it, I, it struck me as he said, I want to have a million followers. And they said, well, at, at what? And he said, doesn't matter. <laughs> Just want to have a million followers. So, so these issues, they're widespread and they're affecting the choices we make and they're affecting the way we see one another. And, and some of the biggest issues we'll see, and we can talk about it, like it drives a, a, a sense of polarization in society that doesn't really exist. We do have some polarization, but it's not nearly as widespread as we think. 
Yeah. All right. All right. Well, let's go there. I it was hard to come away from your book without a sense that we are closer together than we think. And then you turn around and look at other studies that show the words that come up are incomprehension, contempt, um, you know, a sense that the other side is incapable of even recognizing the facts in front of them. Uh, what gives you that confidence that people are actually privately closer than they think? Well, so, you know, at my think tank populace, we do this, it's called private opinion. So we have methods that get around the distorting effects mm -hmm. of social pressure and stuff. And we have probably more private opinion data on the American public than anybody else. And I'm not looking for good news. Like, I just want the facts, right? I just want, mm -hmm. we, we, we can't solve a problem if we're naive about the real cause of it. So in in every single case, we've, we've studied, you know, the kind of lives people want to live, the kind of country they want to live in. Um, what they want out of our key institutions, um, and even how we want to treat one another. And what we find over and over again is in private, an incredible amount of common ground across demographics. And the, the bigger obstacle is that we're just not, we don't believe it. We actually just think the other, other people are so far apart. Let me give you a concrete example. A few years ago, we did uh, the study on what people want for the future of the country. What are our trade-off priorities? for what you want America to be. And before, before doing this uh, private opinion instrument, which had 50, 55 different possibilities for what a country can strive for, right? Everything from military dominance to incredible generosity in our welfare system and everything in between. So before we gave them the private opinion instrument, we just asked people point blank, are, are we more divided or united as a country? And you won't be surprised given what's going on in society now, 82% said we were more divided. And half of those people said we were extremely divided. And it even got worse when you um, when you cut it by who you voted for in the last election. A majority of both sides said the other side no longer shares my fundamental values for the country. Okay. Wow. So that, that and that sounds a bit like where, where we feel like we are, right? But what's interesting is you give those exact same people this private opinion instrument on what they want for the future of the country. And it is shocking. Like, in fact, if you just look at the top 10 highest aspirations, the things you want most, we actually share eight out of the 10 in common across all demographics. So, and, and what's really fascinating is like what those things are. We still care a lot about, about individual rights. We still care about things like everyone having quality health care, a good education, right? That we treat one another with respect and that we have a fair shot to earn our own success. There are things that, that feel very American, right? And I don't mean that exclusion of other countries, just like this is supposed to be who we are. Mm -hmm. uh, and we still hold that in private. And yet, when you look at what people think most people <laughs> care about, you get a completely different picture. So I could do that over and over again. In, in almost every facet of our lives. In next month, we're coming out with four years of data on what people want out of K-12 education. Mm -hmm. Same thing, incredible common ground. Um, and yet when, when you ask them what everybody else wants, they think they want the same system we have with standardized tests and college, the only option. So, so here we are. And, and you know th this idea of, of a false polarization is only one real consequence of these collective illusions, right? There, there's also this deep sense of, 
dissatisfaction with the lives we're going to live because we know we're making choices, not based on what we want, but what we think everybody else wants us to do. All right. We've got a, a set of collective illusions that privately you've discovered are are not true and that in the lives of the people expressing those opinions, they make them inauthentic and miserable and uh, undermine democracy, which requires trust. It, so why are these destructive, negative illusions so persistent? Yeah, that's a great question. So Tansa, let's step back and, and think about the sort of root cause of these illusions. And, and that'll help us understand and, and why they are so pervasive today and so sticky. So to understand these illusions, which seem outrageous, <laughs> that they're everywhere, you only have to know two things about how your brain works, right? Because this is not some this is not some bad actor or you're being lied to. It's just, it's how our brains operate. And it's this little shortcut that's getting manipulated. So the first thing is, won't be terribly surprising, but you, all human beings have a conformity bias. Like all is equal, we prefer to be with our groups, not against our groups. And like, we all have it, some of us more than others, but we all have it. And if you don't mind, I'll give you one of my favorite examples, just to, just to show you how strong that conformity bias is. And, and I like to tell it every time I get chance I get, because I can't believe anyone got paid to do this study. But is <laughs> So uh, my colleague in, in the Netherlands wanted to know how, whether con our conformity bias went as deep as something as subjective as who you think is good looking. <laughs> so he, he did this study where I, I feel like it's a fancy version of like hot or not, right? Which is put, <laughs> you know, put people in a scanner, which makes it scientific and show pictures of people's faces. And all, if you're in his study, all you had to do was rate them on a scale of one to five with five being most attractive, one being least attractive. That's it, right? And you're gonna do that for like 120 faces. So what's interesting though, and the, and what made this a fascinating study is, Every time you responded to one of them, what happened immediately is you were shown how the average of all the people that had done the study before, how did they respond to it, right? Now, here's the trick. That was all made up. There, there were no other people. <laughs> and the, 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 the trick was on, on about half of the, the trials, you're told that the group and you agree completely on the attractiveness score. And then the other half, you're completely at odds with your group. So here's what's fascinating. When you're told that your view of who's good looking is the same as your group, it triggered a dopamine reward response. The same reward response that hard drugs activate, right? I mean, it's, I mean wow. it is so addictive to be there with your group because it's a good survival mechanism, right? Better, almost better wrong together than right alone. Conversely, if you were told that your, your response was different than your group, it triggered what's called an error signal cascades throughout your brain tells you something's really wrong and you need to change your behavior. Okay. So that's what I mean when I say we have a conformity bias, it's very strong, but right for that conformity bias to actually work, you have to know what your group really believes or else what are you conforming to? Now, here's where we get in trouble. Your brain has this really, really simple shortcut for estimating group consensus, which may have worked back in the day, but is really unreliable now. And here's the shortcut. Your brain assumes the loudest voices repeated the most are the majority. Again, it was probably never perfect, but but it probably worked okay when you had a, you're in groups of like 150, you kind of knew everybody. 
But imagine putting this shortcut into social media mm. and you mm. start to see the problem. And, 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 and here we go. So, so this is how you're going to get them because it's easy to misread the group. But why they're so pervasive is if you just take Twitter alone, we know that about 80% of all content on Twitter is created by only 10% of the users. And that 10% isn't remotely representative of the broader public. They tend to be extreme on almost all social issues. But just to close the loop, you can see the problem. If, if only 10% of people hold a view, but you think it's 80%, then your, your brain's gonna assume that's the majority. And unless you're willing to go against the group, you're just gonna go along to get along, right? And if enough people do that, enough people self-silence, then the this vocal fringe is the only opinion that anybody hears from and the results of collective illusion. Well, that's kind of frightening. Uh, <laughs> right? the, especially since, as you pointed out, a, a generation later, that collective illusion can become received wisdom uh, and really stuck to it. In your book, you note that silence um, allows collective illusions to take root. So you've made this assumption that that 10% is actually 80% of your group. And so you're afraid to speak up about it. Um, and that, you know, for all sorts of evolutionary reasons that you've gone into is an understandable response. It takes guts to speak up and say what you think is contrary to the, to the group. Any advice on how people can, can do that? Or is that even wise? Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a great question. And, and let me just put a, a finer point on what you just said. So, I mean, the self-silencing, this is what breeds these illusions. And if you really are against your group, that is frightening. And there are consequences, right? Groups really do ostracize. Like this is, so, so it, you know, it, it's fair enough. Hmm. But the collective illusion, what, what we have to now realize is there is a very good chance, like call it a coin toss, that you're wrong about the group to begin with. And you think about how would I behave if I really thought my group agreed with me? Of course you'd speak up, right? And I'll say this, this is just, again, to, for emphasis, this self-silencing thing is a massive problem. So we just we just came out with a report that people can get on our, on our website called Private Opinion in America, where we looked at the amount of self-silencing across a bunch of different controversial issues. And the, the takeaway is it's everybody. There isn't a single demographic in the country where people aren't misrepresenting their views on multiple issues. Like it is misrepresenting their own views, not yes. interpreting the wrong, They're, attributing the wrong thing to, a, to that, a group. Wow. That's right. That's how far down the rabbit hole we are right now, where we are so convinced our groups think something they don't, that we're espousing ideas that we don't privately agree with. And it's, it's pretty frightening. And so I, I just want to frame that because the stakes are pretty high, right? Now, of course, look, the right answer is, is ultimately we have to have the moral courage to be honest with each other about our views and the civic courage to make it safe for other people to do so, right? But of course, that's not always easy. And mm -hmm. we've all been there. There are a handful of things you can do that are that are actually pretty um, surprising in terms of their effectiveness, right? The, the most important thing and, and is that, let's say you're in a situation where you know you have an opinion, you're afraid to, to, to voice it because you think the group disagrees with you. The, the simplest thing, and it will seem simple, but is you can actually inject uncertainty into the group. So you can say, you know, I haven't made up my mind. And then you give the sort of pros and cons of both sides. 
it's pretty surprising. Groups do not punish people who haven't made up their mind. They don't. And what you'll find is if, if you inject the uncertainty, um, if it's an illusion and people are on your side, they will grab at that uncertainty like a life raft. And <laughs> you'll hear a lot of people repeat it. If what you get back is a lot of pressure, a lot of like, oh, no, you're wrong. Let me explain. Or, or here's why you should have an opinion. Then you're probably sure that is actually the group's opinion. And you can decide for yourself whether you want to go against the group. But these are ways to understand, am I dealing with an illusion or am I dealing with actual group opinion? But like I said, like at the end of the day, we have to get back to, to the basic norm of respecting free expression and, and, and protecting people's uh, right to speak up even when we disagree or especially when we disagree with them. And, and the last thing I'll say there is paradoxically, you know, it's much harder to speak up against the group than it is to defend someone that you disagree with. People don't punish you for defending someone you genuinely disagree with. So if you if you want to take steps to to dismantle these illusions, right, and, and you don't feel like you can find that moral courage or, or really can't afford the economic or, or 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 even sometimes physical consequences of disagreeing with a group, be willing to take a stand to defend someone's views you disagree with. That's interesting. That's interesting. Have you got examples from public life where people have done that? Yeah. So look, the nice thing is, is in this country, we have a history of, of, of that, right? Where our ability to, to do that, to defend the principles of free speech. Um, I, I would say, let me take a step back and say one of the most important sort of consequences of this, the sort of benefits of being willing to do this came from, you know, the Velvet Revolution, which is one of my favorite examples in all of history. And, and I'm going to point this out because it feels like in our time right now that things are so difficult and, 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 so hard to imagine making any kind of social progress, but this is the best news of all because under collective illusions, they're really powerful when they're in force, but they're very fragile because they're actually lies. And when you shatter them, right, change happens in a hurry. So just to step back, this velvet revolution, you think about this was the only time in history where we have overthrown an authoritarian regime without anybody losing their life, not a single person. You're talking about the revolution in Czechoslovakia. Absolutely. happened just, I mean, amazingly, just a couple of years after uh, uh, the Russians came in and brutally repressed a, a somewhat liberal government in Czechoslovakia and replaced exactly it. Exactly right. Exactly right. And then, and you think about, so here's what's interesting. And, and at the same time of this revolution, you have similar types of uprisings in like Hungary and other things that are like mm-hmm. brutally suppressed, right? So here's what's interesting about the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia. It's it's who led it, first of all, right? So it was Václav Havel, who was not a military person, was not even a politician. He was a playwright and a poet. And here's what's fascinating. And by the way, for this is your bonus thing for, for listeners. If you want to read probably the most inspiring manifesto you've ever read, Václav Havel wrote one called The Power of the Powerless, and it's freely available online. It's worth reading. It'll sound like it was written today for our time. Mm -hmm. And in it, he talks about that he realizes that the fundamental problem in Czechoslovakia was not that people believed in communism, but that they thought everybody believed in communism. And so they were all going along um, to get along. And the reason he knew it is he wrote this play called The Garden Party which was like a satire of communism, but it was so subtle that even the censors didn't know they were being made fun of. But it became the Hamilton of its time 
Like, I mean, it was sold out every night and he watched and he watched, he said, everybody laughed at the right places, like places you wouldn't laugh if you really believed. Um, and so what he realizes there is that this is a different problem, right? He didn't call it collective illusions, but that's what we would call it now. Um, and he realizes that the way out of it was not force, right? It wasn't even politics. It was authenticity, right? It was, it was building the habit of being authentic to one another again. And, and I got to say, he was mocked widely for this. Like, it just seemed naive to think that this was a, a solution to anything meaningful. Um, but he, he goes about the work of, of creating situations for people to learn how to be more authentic, not even about politics at first. Okay, so he's doing that work. And what's so funny is even he's surprised by the speed with which this all happens, because a short while before, you know, the revolution unfolds, he's interviewed in an international magazine. And he says, listen, um, I believe in this. I'm committing my life to it, but I don't think I will live to see the, the, the change. Hmm. Three months later, he was the first democratically elected president of a free Czechoslovakia. And, and look, I share that because if a poet can overthrow communism because of collective losers, think what we can do. And, and, and I think this is important because so much of what's going on in our society feels like it's out of our control, right? It's just forces are too big. What can I do? But when you realize that the root of a lot of this are collective illusions, you have so much more power than you realize. Because when you put that first crack in these illusions, the things that it can unleash are just unimaginable. And so I, I, I think it's really important for us to realize we still have a responsibility and we have more power than we think. I love the story of Václav Havel, one of the true heroes of the 20th century. No doubt about it. I'm glad you brought that up. So speaking of responsibility and um, authenticity combined, you talk about a attribute pulled from Confucian ethics called Chung. Could yeah. you describe what that is and, and how it works? Yeah, what was so fascinating is I was kind of trying to think about where we go from here. And, you know, you look, we have a history on, in Western thought that, you know, we, we went from sincerity, which was, you know, a public display in, in some sense to this authenticity, which is just be true to yourself. And th the truth is, is that, you know, neither of those quite got it, what we felt like we had to get to. And this Chung idea, which was so fascinating, really blends the two and sees no distinction between like the need to be honest with yourself, right? Be true to myself, but the, the civic obligation to be true about yourself to other people. And I thought that was fascinating. And when you look at the this attribute and all the consequences of people who are able to achieve that, it's interesting. Not only is it the, the, the sort of saving grace to, to avoid collective illusions, but there's an enormous amount of research showing the personal benefits of this, of this congruence, right? This sense of the, the public me and the private me are the same as far as I know. And what we see is that people end up leading much more fulfilling lives, right? They are viewed as much more trustworthy, even when people disagree with them. Because if you think about it, if you and I disagree, but I know you're straight with me, I can trust that, right? Mm -hmm. I, I can trust that. So, so you know, I thought it was interesting. It's been around for a long time. It, it, we don't have a, a, a sort of comparable exactly in, in Western uh, philosophy, but I do think this is where we have to get. Because here's the thing. Our information technologies are a miracle, and they do. They give everybody a voice, and, and we don't want to lose that. This is really important. 
But I believe that collective illusions are one of those unintended consequences of a technology that otherwise has a lot of upside because it will forever be a fun house of mirrors. It will always distort what you think the majority in your group believes just by its, its dynamic. There's not much to do about that. But what we can do is make sure that that distortion does not affect the way we treat one another in real life. And so I see this, this attribute of congruence and chung as being a, a critical virtue that we have to hold for ourselves in modern society if we're going to get the upside of our technologies without being destroyed by them. Chang implies responsibility, a social responsibility to be authentic, to be true to yourself. And uh, as the Shakespearean saying goes, then you cannot be false to anyone else. What is the responsibility of social media companies, for example? Yeah, it's look, I mean, there's some things that, that they can do. And, I, and I'll say like, they can't solve the problem again for the reasons we talked about. Like it's even if they were playing it completely straight, you're still going to hear from passionate people that will, it will feel like it's most people. And, and so there's, a, that's our responsibility ultimately. That said, right. There are some things and, and probably the simplest thing they could do, which is against their bottom line right now has to do with social bots. And in, in the book, you know, this is where I'm, I'm right with Elon you know, looks like he may not own Twitter when it's all said and done. But, you know, I think he's he's absolutely right. And I've said so before to him. It's that, you know, right now, these social bots, they make it look like there's a lot more people on these platforms, which is really good for, you know, uh, what, what looks like, you know, their bottom line. But the problem is, is that, you know, state actors in particular have figured this out. So Russia and China in particular um, is so... Most people think like, for example, in the 2016 election, that Russia spread a lot of lies. It's not really true. They did some of that, but but researchers at Clemson showed that basically what they do is they've got these social bots and they are programmed because like Twitter has like conservative Twitter and liberal Twitter, and they don't overlap a lot, unfortunately. And what, what they'll do is they'll go in and they'll analyze sentiment and they'll find fringe views, say on conservative Twitter, which they did. And then they'll just swarm with these bots and they'll retweet. So they're, they're honest opinions by real people. They're just very fringy. And then the retweeting, and then they'll actually counter and attack uh, competing views. And so what will happen is that say I'm conservative, I'll be like, oh, wow, I didn't realize this is what we believe. Meanwhile, they're doing the same thing with liberal Twitter. And I'm like, well, I'm not those crazy people, right? And so what you'll see is it creeps the whole sort of, consensus view toward this fringe. Megan Kelly interviewed me a while back and she said, well, yeah. When, in fact, when she went and interviewed Putin, he was proud to take her and show her the technology of how, how easy it was to manipulate group consensus in the US using social media. So know that this is happening to us right now, that it only takes about 5% of our interactions online to be with bots for those bots to completely determine group consensus. And right mm. now, the conservative estimates are about 15% of all of our interactions with bots. So I, I feel like there is something that social media companies have an obligation to do, which is to not allow those kind of things to amplify and further distort something that's already going to be a distortion. How about personal responsibility? So you said many times that uh, in the course of this interview and throughout your book that we have a personal responsibility to trust people who disagree with us and give them the space to express their sincere opinions. 
also to speak up on our own behalf. Can that make a difference? And how do you live your life uh, according to the principle of Chang? Yeah, well, it, it for sure will make a difference. And, and I think in this case, what's really great is we're not asking for some new norm. We're asking to solidify a fundamental norm of liberal society, right? Broad tolerance, which is so difficult. Like, let's be clear. It's very, very hard to hold back from when someone you disagree, especially when it's something that matters, right? Like, I, I think you're not just wrong, but I think you're like morally wrong. Like, that's hard. Um, and if you think about how hard one, um, the norm of just basic tolerance was, right? That, that I mean, it emerges from religious wars in the West where we, mm. we just spent forever killing each other. And you're like, wait a minute, maybe this isn't great, right? Maybe we should just like, put down the weapons and just agree to disagree for a, for a minute. But even that idea of agree to disagree, doesn't that seem quaint? It, it seems like, are you kidding? We don't agree to disagree anymore. We're just going to attack and we're going to name call and we're going to browbeat you into submission. But once you realize that not only have you not converted someone that you've silenced, the damage that you're doing to society as people feel like, I can't say what I think anymore, the distortions you're creating with with respect to our perceived shared values, like and and the trust that that erodes, is so irreparable that it, it should be unacceptable. And so, if you think about it, like at the end of the day, like we're in a place where the majority of our of our disagreements are seemingly um, intractable uh, polarization are actually rooted in illusions, and that if if we just had enough faith in one another to give people the space to even just be wrong, right? <laughs> that, that, that these things will go away. And, and, and then we can confront our real disagreements because there are some, right? We really do disagree on things like immigration and other things, but we can do that from a place of, of good faith. The, the truth is, is we don't have another choice. We don't. Free societies depend on that, our willingness to give each other that space. And the, the last thing I'll say about, about that and, and this is the thing that bothers me the most about what we might call cancel culture, is it denies the idea that humans are capable of moral progress. You can be wrong, you can be bigoted, but you can also grow and change. But how are you gonna grow and change if you can't be confronted respectfully about those opinions by people who are trying to change your mind, right? Shutting people down and name calling and, and, and trying to have economic sanctions for beliefs doesn't help anybody. And uh, we should be deeply leery of that. And so again, the way out of this, there's some technology solutions, but the ultimate solution is a recommitment to this fundamental liberal value of free expression and tolerance for dissent. That is a great place to end it. Uh, a recommitment to tolerance and free expression. Um, I can't think of a more stirring way to ring down an episode of In Reality. Todd, thank you very much. Todd Rose is the founder of the think tank Populist and the author of an amazing book, Collective Illusions. Thanks for being on the show, Todd. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to In Reality, the podcast about truth, disinformation, and the media. I'm Eric Schoenberg. Thanks for listening. If you too care about the assault on truth in the digital era, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave a review. One more note, this podcast was made possible by the terrific production team at Podcast Partners. Special thanks to my producers, Amelia Spooner and Paula Robel. If you like how it sounded, learn more at podcastpartners.com.